Welcome to Unlocking Impact. I'm your host, Sarah Schoenfeld, CEO of the Trade Impact Foundation. In this podcast, we explore issues at the intersection of the global economy, sustainability, and human rights. This episode features the second half of my conversation with Ben Shepard, Principal of Developing Trade Consultants. I spoke with Ben last episode about the potential for trade policy and development to be used as a tool for impact on a human level. In this episode, we discuss gender discrimination and gender rights in the context of the international trading system, and we explore the possible role that international trade, trade policy, and development can play in promoting global gender rights. In case you missed the last episode and my opening there, I'll tell you a bit about Ben. Ben is a trade economist and development consultant. He's worked with organizations such as the World Bank, the OECD, and the United Nations. Ben was a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Niehaus Center for Globalization and Governance. He holds a Ph.D. in economics from France's leading public policy school, Sciences Po, and has completed graduate studies at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom and the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm so excited for you to hear the second half of our conversation. Here it is. When we're talking about gender rights, which is a big part of just overall inclusivity and, you know, tolerance and understanding within a society. When we're talking about gender rights specifically, and I know you've done some research on this, so I look forward to hearing your views. Um, you know, how do you deal with the differences in cultures, in governance structures, in values that we see we see all over the world? And how do we push forward in, in, a, in an area such as gender equality when we have those competing, you know, those we have those obstacles in our way in terms of even just talking to each other on the same level and understanding each other? Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting question to take up because you're, you're right that it's a, one area in which societies differ particularly radically uh, around the world. So, you know, we, we, we have societies where gender equality is a key value. Governments are working towards it. People accept that, that, that this is part of the society we want. We have other parts of the world where that is not the case. People simply see it differently. Now, one, one thing I'd say for the trading system, we, we've recently had a pretty good win on, on this so in the, the agreement on uh, domestic regulation and services, I mean, we, we don't really need to get into what that's actually about. It's a pretty technical uh, sort of set of understandings. But it, it's an agreement that part of the WTO's membership uh, ha- has now signed off on. And as part of that, they said, we all agree that we're not going to discriminate on the basis of gender when we give out licences for uh, operating a service business. And, you know, for us sitting here in the United States in 2021, uh, that may not sound like a big win, right? It sounds like something pretty basic. But to get a significant number of countries to actually agree on something that concrete when it comes to gender equality uh, is a, a, a bit of a win. So, you know, I think we are definitely making some progress there. The, the other place where we're seeing a lot of activity is in including uh, chapters on gender in trade agreements, the, meaning bilateral agreements that countries uh, sign with each other. So some countries are very active in doing that. Uh, Europe tends to do it a lot. Uh, Canada tends to do it a lot. And there, there are some other countries uh, around the world that, that include these chapters systematically. I've got to say my jury is out uh, a little bit on gender chapters. 
What I like about them is that they raise the issue and they give it prominence and they say that it's something that we care about. And if you want to get, uh, you know, lower tariffs, more favourable market access, then you're, you're, you're going to have to agree that it's important too. So that, that's the part that I like about it. What I like a little bit less is that when you go into the chapters, there's very little that's actually binding. And very often, all that countries have to do is sit and talk with each other. So if we take the Canada-Chile free trade agreement, for example, which was touted at the time as being kind of the the leading agreement on uh, gender, all it really does is establish a consultation mechanism. That is to say that representatives from Canada are going to sit down with representatives from Chile every year or so, and they're going to talk about what they're doing on gender. Now, that's, of course, a lot better than not talking about it, right? So it's definitely something. But I do wonder uh, how that translates into a better quality of life uh, for women on the ground. So uh, as I say, my my jury is open. Maybe we're just at the beginning of a process. You know, this is how it starts. We, We start by just talking about it and then we go from there over a period of time into doing things that are more concrete. But I guess I have in the back of my mind a set of pretty concrete things that, that we could do now in the even the very traditional uh, structures of trade agreements in the WTO that I think would make a difference uh, to women's everyday lives. And I, I guess I'd like to see the discussion uh, cover some of that as well. Yeah, I you know I agree with with a ton of what you said. I think that there is merit. You know, there there are gains whenever we have those provisions come in, even if they are very broad and if they are not binding and they're not enforceable. My view is it's still better than none. I think that some would take the view of, well, it's just going to kind of like almost in some ways like greenwash or whitewash, right? They're going to you're going to pretend like you're doing something when you're not. That's one view, certainly. I think that there is something to be said, though, for incremental progress. So that's that's my own view. I think that, you know, what you talked about, the practical piece in terms of like, let's look at one very specific piece of regulation, right? Licensing for businesses and making sure there's no gender specific discrimination. That's amazing to me. I mean, it sounds really I know to some it's like, oh, that's so boring. That's nothing. Of course, we're going to have that. No, that's that's a huge deal, especially in a country where that's not common. And then what happens next is the next regulation follows that you know, pattern, right? I mean, you can just keep going in these teeny tiny steps in terms of equality and removing discrimination from small laws that I think do add up and people start to have an open open mind and be exposed to what is equality, what what's wrong with discrimination. And then people perhaps could say, well, wait, if women can own a business, but you're telling women they can't, you know, drive a car, why is that? What's what's going yeah. on here? And it just starts to raise questions in your mind, maybe subconsciously. And so I think those practical pieces that we know will reach the people living in a country, if you're starting with regulations and you keep going, I, I think the power there is is immense. Yeah, I think that's that, that that's true. And, 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 you know, we really have to see how that plays out in the future, because uh, while there is actually a, a pretty long history of uh, gender being included in trade agreements, so starting with, with the trade agreements uh, that then turned into the European Union, it, it does actually go back uh, quite some decades, but it's only really gained a lot of momentum very recently. Um, so I think we, we do have to wait and see uh, what it actually leads to. Um, but, you know, like you, I see something like 
this licensing rule in in the services talks. And you know, I do agree with you that that's something really concrete that is going to make a difference to women who want to start a business or enter a profession. Uh, they, these sorts of things. I think we we've learned a lot recently through some some great data collection efforts that have looked at this sort of thing. So again, I'm betraying my economist bias and wanting to measure, <laughs> you know, quantify everything. Um, but the Women, Business and the Law database at the World Bank uh, I, was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I, I've been working on gender for, for some years now, but uh, some of the nuggets of information that you find in that database are really extraordinary, touching on the sorts of issues that you just mentioned, things like access to finance. You know, yeah. we, we forget sometimes that it was only in the 1970s uh, that women in the United States got the ability to sign mortgages on their own, you know, without their husband. Uh, That's pretty crazy, right? That's not so long ago. It's not so long ago. And, of course, in many parts of the world, that's still the rule. Uh, either women can't own property in their own names or they can't take out a loan in their own names. Um, there are parts of the world, India stands out, they actually have a declining women's labour force participation at the moment, which is a very unusual uh, statistic. It's going up in most parts of the developing world. But in India, it's it's going down. And there are actually specific laws uh, in India and in other parts of South Asia that restrict the industries that women can work in. So there are certain parts of manufacturing industry where women are just not allowed at all. There are, in mm. some countries, restrictions on the hours that women can work. They're not allowed to work at night. Um, all, all these sorts of restrictions. So to me, that that's that interesting. Stuff, is that is that taken under under safety precautions? Is that well? Again, it's one of those issues where we have a nominal justification, and then mm-hmm. I think what is actually going on. So you, you're quite right. The nominal justification is that it's about safety. In practice, I think what it means is that women are supposed to work a second shift at home. Um, so you go mm-hmm. out and work out of the home during the day, then you come home in the evening and do, do housework, cooking, uh, all, all this sort of stuff. That's still the, the traditional model that, that is in place in those countries. Now, all of this stuff can change. One thing I think, you know, trade, trade agreements, it's an open question as to how much they should be dealing with labour restrictions, uh, labour measures, all these sorts of things. The reality is that they do in some cases. and The renegotiated NAFTA is, is, is an example of that. But one thing that I think trade agreements can do, which is very simple and should be uncontroversial, is to deal with uh, what are becoming called pink tariffs. That is to say tariffs that apply particularly to goods that women consume. Now, if you look at, at an example in the United States, when we import clothing, we actually apply a higher tax rate on women's clothing than we do on men's clothing. Um, and this is for similar stuff. So I've, I've heard the example uh, just recently of suits. Basically, women's suits are taxed at one rate, men's suits are taxed at a lower rate. Now, why, why is that, right? There, mm-hmm. there, there's, yep. No, yep. There, there's, there's no great sort of political, economic or social rationale for that. It's pure discrimination. And furthermore, why, why are there even different classifications for women versus men's apparel? Precisely, yeah. So th- this is the legacy of history, right? Seeing these as different products because they've got different end uses. In clothing, of course, that that's one example, but... Uh, when we come to cosmetics, there, there's a whole literature on on pink taxes where exactly the same product uh, gets packaged a little bit differently and then sold at a higher price to women than to men. Now, you know, part of that is 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 about willingness to pay and price discrimination. Yeah, um, yeah. But of course, from the point of view, again, to to bring it back to women's everyday experiences of of sort of wanting purchasing power, wanting to get value for money, this sort of thing. Um, it's it's obviously a very negative experience. 
And so something that trade agreements can do is to at least deal with the tariff part of that. That is to say the discriminatory taxes that are applied at the border. Clothing is one example. In many low- and middle-income countries, a particularly important example is uh, sanitary products. Uh, so in many of the smaller countries, uh, they're not manufactured locally, so they're only uh, imported and they're taxed very heavily. Um, so textile products tend to be taxed uh, pretty heavily at the border relative to other types of goods. And, of course, it's a pure tax uh, that, that, falls on, uh, that, that falls on women. There's no yeah. objective of sort of boosting domestic production, creating work, any of that sort of thing. It's that governments take the view that these products are luxuries, uh, when, of course, they're not. They're products of first necessity. So I think, you know, in trade agreements, if, if you think of the historical work of trade agreements, as being reducing tariffs, well, why not skew those reductions uh, towards products that uh, make women's lives better? What is your view going forward in, in terms of, you know, how can we, looking at the globe, looking at the whole world, thinking about trying to enhance the experience of women and, you know, as well as members of any gender, um, as we're seeing the, the definition of what is gender, you know, yep. really expand to make sure that we're being inclusive of the experience of all, all people. How do you see the role of trade policy and perhaps the World Trade Organization specifically in helping to enhance those experiences of women and those of any gender around the world? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, the, the WTO has done some work on this. So they, they had a declaration on trade and women at the ministerial in uh, 2017. So, you know, I, I think part of what, what WTO is doing is at this stage raising awareness. Again, I'm, I'm not on the ground in Geneva, but, but my reading of the tea leaves is that it would be pretty hard to get uh, much of an agreement on this among members that goes beyond a, a declaration of principle, which is, which is basically what they got to. But as you said earlier, all of that helps. It's an incremental process and sort of getting the discussion going I think the the current director general is is being good about this particular issue. I think she she believes in it and and she's raising uh, the the profile of it. So all of that is is very positive. I think the uh, the recent declaration that we talked about on uh, domestic regulation that's another really important uh, step forward. As to what else we can we can do at that sort of level, I actually think the ball is in the court of some of the other international organisations. So something that is peculiar about the WTO is that it's a member-driven organisation, which means that it has a very small secretariat and the secretariat doesn't have the power to initiate new work. They, they, they can't decide that, you know, we'd like everyone to talk about a particular issue and, and actually initiate that. It's got to come from members and there's got to be a consensus among, uh, you know, 160-plus members that this is something that we want to talk about. Now, not all organisations work that way. So the World Bank doesn't work that way. If it wants to start doing work on trade and gender, it can. And indeed it has. They, they've done some very important uh, analytical work in the last few years on understanding the links between trade and gender a, a, a little bit better. Um, the International Trade Centre has a very high-profile uh, project called She Trades, which is about boosting the involvement of women in the trading system, uh, helping women's economic empowerment, and part of all of this, um, again, I'm going to display my bias, but but part of this is measurement. So, you know, there, there's that old saying that what gets measured gets done. And, and I think the first step in moving forward on a lot of this uh, is actually to measure just how badly we're doing at the moment. And there is no country 
that really has clean hands uh, when it comes to uh, gender equality. And, and, you know, using that in, uh, as you were saying, the the broader sense of how we understand uh, gender now. Um, For instance, pay gaps persist in every country. Um, It doesn't matter what the laws are on the books. It doesn't matter what changes have taken place over recent decades. You can be in the United States, you can be in Norway, you can be in Tanzania. There's still a gender wage gap. Okay, so so quantifying that and figuring out what countries have done that's made an incremental difference, you know, the sort of step-by-step mm-hmm. approach you were mm-hmm. talking about earlier, I think that's something that the international agencies can really usefully do because they have the knowledge and experience to engage with these countries and 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 try and try and learn in a very concrete sense uh, what's worked. We we do see some interesting work going on in development economics. A, a big thing in development economics these days is to do experiments, uh, randomised controlled trials. So people come up with an idea of a particular change and often it's it, it falls into the category of kind of a nudge, that is to say a, a behavioural intervention rather than a, a kind of, uh, you know, passing a law or something like that. Okay, we're going to wrap up with a totally different question. Outside of your day-to-day, this goes to the the sense of just always trying to better ourselves and always trying to learn new things. Is there something that that you can speak to that for you on a personal or professional level is something that you're currently working to further learn or develop? Sure. I mean, this is this is a bit of both, to, to be honest. I think it, it started out as a personal interest, but it's got, it's got some professional implications as well. Um, you, you know, we're all surrounded by algorithms these days, uh, predictive algorithms. So you, you, you go to Netflix and it gives you a list of shows that it thinks that you're going to like. You mm-hmm. open up Gmail to type an email. You type two words and it, com- it tries to complete the sentence for yep. you. So I'm fascinated by all that kind of stuff. Um, again, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with, with computers since, since I was a kid and, and now in my job. And so I've been investing, um, you know, a little bit of my spare time in trying to learn a bit more about how these things work um, because I think they have, you know, when it's something like suggesting films that you might like, it, it's fairly innocuous. It's not totally innocuous because it can still embody the biases of the data that was used to train the algorithm or it can embody the biases of the people who wrote the algorithm and that that can be a very unhealthy thing. Um, But, you know, we see this playing out in other areas as well. In the criminal justice system, um, there have been experiments uh, with the use of algorithms for sentencing. Um, So where you're basically plugging in particular information about the nature of the offence, the characteristics of the offender, and then, uh, you know, matching that to a sentence. I, I don't believe it's actually been applied to literally sentence people. So this is, this is still an experimental uh, technology. But I find all of this stuff both intriguing and a little bit scary. Um, so I'm spending um, a lot more of my time uh, trying to figure out how it works and, you know, doing some very kind of basic examples with the sort of stuff that, that I work with. Uh, to learn how I might be able to use it, so that that's that's why I said it's 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 partly a personal interest, but it's kind of bleeding a little into the professional sphere as well. Really interesting, really interesting. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today on Unlocking Impact. It's been great talking with you about trade policy and and trade eco- economics and so many things in between. Um, thank you for for making the time. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It was a real pleasure talking. 
We still have so much work to do in terms of closing gender gaps, reducing gender-based discrimination around the world, and addressing other gender-based issues. Ben shows us how trade agreements and trade policy just might be one of the tools that we need to close some of those gaps and fix some of those issues. Most people don't consider gender discrimination as an aspect of international trade. So I'm really glad that we got to hear Ben's perspective on where we see this happening and the ways in which we can limit it. And I think this conversation makes really clear that measuring discrimination, as well as discriminatory outcomes, and tracking incremental progress will be really key to understanding how we can do better. So thanks so much for joining us today on Unlocking Impact. I hope that you enjoyed the second half of my conversation with Ben. Thanks for your time, and I hope to speak to you soon. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you.